Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 118 of Controller Controllables. We often get asked in the world of tennis, what ranking do you need to be to make a living? Well, this week's guest spent most of his career inside the world's top 300. And this is what he had to say about that. I've got to say that I, I loved it and I loved I loved the life. I'm very competitive. I love competing. And that probably took away the fact that the money at my ranking wasn't great. You know, I was in debt quite a bit of the time. Kind of when I rationalised it, when I asked myself that question during those 10 years, like, is it worth it? I was like, oh, well, yeah, what, what else am I going to do in my 20s? This is great. And that was Alex Ward, the British tennis player, was as high as 242 ATP. He had 16 Futures titles to his name and one ATP Challenger final. He played at Wimbledon. He's then gone into the coaching world over the last two or three years. You would have known him, and I did when we had this conversation, as the coach of British player Heather Watson. But over the last few days, that relationship has ended and Alex is moving on into lots of other exciting things in his coaching world. His dad was a coach. He has a great story. He played tennis only four hours up until the age of 16 before moving out to a Spanish tennis academy. This interview was done about four or five months ago. We had a few issues with the sound, which we've been trying to fix So there will be a couple of things throughout the podcast that are a little bit backdated, but it is, it's another beauty, it's another one that you will learn lots from, and I hope keeps you thoroughly entertained over the next hour or so. I'm going to pass you over to Alex Ward. So Alex Ward, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks Dan, I'm good. Um, Great job with the podcast, I've been listening to quite a few. It, no, it's, it's great to have you on. And I'm, I'm going to get straight to the point, Alex. We start with people's tennis journeys. Here you are as a player, as someone who's now coaching on the WTA Tour. Where did your tennis journey start? So mine, I'm from Northampton and mine started back in Northampton. I can't remember an age, um, but my dad's a tennis coach and I was always hanging around the club pretty early on. I'd say about four years old. And I just remember hitting against the wall and it was, a, I think it was like the worst gravel in front of this wall. Like it was tough to stand up on, but I remember just hitting balls against this wall at a club, it's called Cherry Orchard. And then doing that a lot of days, especially in the summer, going on court with my dad a bit and it, it all started there. It's like, it's the common one. It's, it's, like, it's unbelievable. And you probably heard it on the podcasts, but you better have, you better have someone who's going to get you to the tennis court in some way, even if we... We talk about the Andy Murray, Jamie Murray story. It was the same. You know, Judy said she was down at the club and they just almost through like osmosis, the, the game get the game gets passed on. So was your was your dad a big influence in your in your tennis? Was he someone who took a took a keen eye on it? Yeah, he was a big influence. He coached me 
from whenever I started till about 16. Um, and then I'd travel on weekends to tournaments with him. Actually, one of my proudest memories, probably through tennis, is playing county week with him. Uh, we played a day at County Cup, which I think was the first father-son partnership for 50 years. Wow. So probably one of the advantages from being from Northamptonshire, not one of the strongest counties. Yeah. Um, and he played at decent level. So he's had a big influence. Um, and then he actually, before I moved to Spain to, at 16, he actually suggested it and kind of thought that was the right path for me. So, yeah, he's had a very big influence. Well, I've got a, I've got a 10-year-old boy who plays tennis. And I've made the choice not to coach him because it's already fiery enough with him over watching football or watching television or whatever it might be. So I've tried to avoid it. How, how was that relationship? How was the dynamic? Yeah, there was definitely a few, a few tougher moments. Um, obviously with your dad being the coach and having two different relationships. I think because again, going back to being from Northampton, I think because he could play well and there wasn't, access to tons of coaches I think I never really questioned it I never in those early years I never wanted to be coached by anybody else like I just enjoyed playing tennis with him I mean until I went to Spain I started young but I only played two hours on Wednesday with him two hours on Friday because he was coaching and he had to earn you know he had to earn money like yeah. and it's most expensive hours for him were me because he had to pay for the court and he didn't yeah. get any money um, so that was probably part of the, the talk we had about me going to Spain just that I couldn't hit enough with him. There was enough players in Northampton. But yeah, there were some tricky moments, but I never really had any problem with it at all. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being coached by him. So up until the age of 16, you played four hours a week? Yeah, so as I said earlier, I started young. I remember being on the court young, but I never really, during those school years up until 16, increased the, the let's say, the training load. Um, I'd still play the, the tournaments at weekends. I was quite highly ranked around 9, 10, probably top five in the country. But actually slowly went down until I was 16. Probably because other players were increasing the volume. I wasn't, um, looking back. And yes, only four hours a week. Two on Wednesday, two on Friday. I just remember it. I didn't have any time off school at that time. Um, I was playing a lot of other sports at school. I love my sport. I love football. I love rugby, cricket, anything. But yeah, four hours a week until 16. And then you moved to Spain. I would imagine there was quite a dramatic increase of volume then. There was. um, (laughs) I went to, when I was 16, I went to Sanchez Casal Academy in Barcelona, pretty well renowned. And yeah, I think it was four hours a day. It wasn't four hours a week, it was four hours a day. And my biggest memory of that was how much I loved the tennis. I loved getting out there. But the first couple of months, I was so homesick. Like I was calling home and it wasn't cheap to call home. It wasn't like now where we can get on like free technology. It cost a bit. So I remember speaking to my dad and being like, look, I love the tennis, but I'm finding this really tough. I think going to Barcelona from a small, small place like Northampton. And I was struggling. I remember like, I was in tears a few nights. Like I was really struggling. And he was good with me. He said, look, just get, try and get through the next week. We'll see how it is. And we just kept going like that. Got through that sticky phase. And then with the massive increase in volume, fortunately I didn't get injured at that time. I improved pretty quickly um, in those years at Sanchez. I was there for two years in total. Yeah, and I guess why did you? Because I, I have, I can completely relate to what you're saying I wasn't I wasn't in Spain but I was living away from home and if if truth be known I hated it for a while I was really homesick it, 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 very 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 similar and I often ask myself the question why I continued but it, it seems to get in our blood have you have you reflected on why you continued when you were having such a tough time of it yeah I think it, yeah it, it was the tennis and it was the 
the in, I was obviously improving, even though I was playing these Spanish national tournaments, kind of local Monty tours. So it's tough probably to gauge improvement from, from Britain. But yeah, I think it was the improvement. And I just think I trusted my dad that it would get better because at times you can't see that it will get better. And I honestly, at times I was like, this is horrible. Like, this is so tough at night. I don't have any like family and friends there, but yeah, just trusted they would get better. And it did. And from, I went in September 06 and from January 07, I was, I was all right. I was, you know, I started to really enjoy both sides of it, started to make more friends. And I was quite shy and introverted when I went out there. Yeah. Um, and it, it definitely had a, I would say it had a huge change on, on my life. Like it was that decision for me was, was massive. Yeah. I spoke to Tom Hill. He went to IMG at 10, which is like crazy early. How, however, and I know Heather Watson, who you coach, went, I believe, at 11 or 12. And we, we mentioned this l- last night. There's all of the other factors that often aren't talked about, which you're also bringing through here, that it, it changes your life, not just your tennis game because of the the experiences that you have, the difficulties you deal with, the the new people that you meet and, and all of those things. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened at Sanchez? Yeah, so initially, obviously, the, the tennis structure was kind of three hours, no, two and a half hours in the morning, hour and a half in the afternoon. So you play your tennis, but then kind of at night for the first couple of months, or at least the first few weeks to a month, I'd, I was very shy. I didn't didn't know anyone there and I wouldn't really put myself out there at all. I mean, I had to, you kind of, it's kind of like sink or swim. You just have to start to make friends, start to become more confident, start to get more belief in myself and just start to come out of my shell a bit through tennis. But also sometimes I think you have to be put in those environments to, to do it. And yeah, I got more and more confident. The improvement in tennis definitely helped. I mean, that helped me a lot, but my personality changed. It changed a lot. Like I'd say I'm pretty confident now. I was not confident at all when I went yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's amazing. I think it's a, it's a good message for youngsters out there and parents to keep putting, keep putting your children in uncomfortable positions, you know, to, to, to develop. And in terms of the Spanish system, you, you've had a couple of years' experience at, at probably the most Spanish of Spanish systems as well, you know, Sanchez Casell. What are the main differences between your typical Spanish system and your British systems in tennis? Yeah, so I had two years at Sanchez Casell, and then in 2015, I actually did another two years at a smaller academy in Barcelona with the same coaches that used to work at Sanchez Casell when I was there. So I linked, linked back up with them. And the, vo- the volume of, of tennis is in general higher in Spain I'd say you're out you're out on the court pretty much every day for four hours at that age um two and a half in the morning one and a half in the afternoon most obvious things that the weather as well the weather's I didn't play indoors once when I was in Barcelona we just took the you know we wouldn't play that day because you know you know it wouldn't rain for a week you'd be yeah. fine and I think I heard it on one of your podcasts before it might have been Juan Bial who said it I think they'll tell you they'll tell you the drills but you just do them a bit more whereas yeah. Phil the the knowledge in Britain, it's very much, you don't stereotype, but might be told the drill and then told why exactly they're doing it and really go deep into the explanation to the players. When the Spanish way, probably more old school, is a bit more like we're doing this crack on and, and they'll trust you to find find the right way to do things. In Barcelona as well, the, the talent or the, the quality of players in that area is, is great. I mean, it's the pool of players that play competitively in that area to have good quality practices is is very high compared to even compared to Britain. You know, if you compare yeah. Barcelona and Britain, Barcelona would have a lot more players world ranked. Um, yeah. 
I think they have more emphasis on the big, like your big ticket basic stuff in tennis than sometimes in Britain, it can be a little bit diluted with try and be very good at everything. And maybe a, let's say you're 16 to even to 20, 22 age where you haven't got as much willpower as an older player. I think you sometimes it's tough to nail, like do your stretching perfectly, eat perfectly, um, do all the stuff around tennis perfectly. Whereas I think, I think you can, I think it's tough basically to focus on so many different areas and get them all right. Cause your willpower is lower than when you get older. I think in Spain, they give you a bit more of an allowance and they don't, they don't concern themselves too much about stuff around the tennis. They want you to be down the tennis. They want you to give 100% on the tennis, be locked in, but they're not as concerned about all these other things, which I think at a younger age, I think it's different when you're a top player, a top 250, top 100, older player. I think a younger age um, can be tough to focus on everything around tennis. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that last point's a, a really interesting point because I think, I think traditionally... A federation, and this is not British specific, a federation often doesn't allow that different character to come through because it's almost everything has to be aligned to working and being a certain a certain way, you know, behaviorally, uh, whether it's racket throwing, whether it's whether it's best efforts all the time, whether it's not going out and drinking beer at night, whether it's, you know, whatever it might be. And I think in Britain, traditionally, we haven't allowed some of those characters to maybe come through. Whereas what what you're saying is maybe the Spanish system allows some of those characters. Like I heard David Ferrer was a big party goer, you know, a big party goer, liked to smoke, liked to go out and drink beer, drink red wine. and, and, And actually the perception of David Ferrer is he's this unbelievable professional brings it every time he's on the court and he did that, but he was allowed to kind of find his way. Whereas maybe we might snuff that out in, in a more kind of British strict regime, which is, which is a really interesting point. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I feel probably the way to say it is in Spain, it's a more narrow focus on the tennis. And in Britain, we have a, a wider focus on the tennis and the other aspects, which they do affect the tennis. There's no doubt about that. They affect it. It's just how much bang for buck at times you'll get from the other areas. Is- and if there was one, if there was one thing that the UK system could take from the Spanish system, what would it be? Well, the sun, but <laughs> that's not possible. <laughs> Um, I think, yeah, you allude to letting the players grow and, and sometimes letting them make mistakes because we're all going to make mistakes. We're, we're humans. Sometimes just letting it happen and just seeing it happen because you can see with players, especially younger players, that they, you can see sometimes before they're going to obviously make this mistake and what they're doing. But to maybe let them learn it themselves so they learn, they make the mistake themselves, then they learn it. They see how it affects their tennis. And then, and then they'll kind of deal with it that way and they'll become a better player and a, a better person that way because the impact of them making a the mistake rather than you telling them and stopping them, they'll really feel it because they'll feel, feel even worse, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that allowing a, allowing a player to develop like naturally a little bit more, um, and there's a lot of great things in the British system, you know? It's just the comparison between the two. That's a, one of the things that stands out. And what could the Spanish system take from the British system? That's a good question. Um, I think we're quicker on the data side of things. And I think that like the analysis stuff, I've got some, like I access some great video stuff from the LTA for the Heathers matches. And, and I think that they're, 
a little bit later to that. And they and at the moment in the game, I think you can really utilise that. Yeah, I think for me, I think the British do a great job at a young age around technique as well. I think, you know, you really do see, you know, a lot of good, good young 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds come through that then have, have that technical ability. So that would certainly be my one. And then, uh, and then I believe that the other way around, I just believe the competition structure is just so superior over here in Spain to what to what we have in, in Britain. And if you go back to you being age 16, how would your competition schedule look when you were out in Spain? It was packed and it was great because... When I was when I started at Sanchez, I played a Monty tour, as many Monty tours as possible. So I entered one every week because you just entered them and they were pretty lax with like withdrawing and like it was done a bit more last minute out there. And we also had 12 futures in, in the Barcelona area a year when I was yeah. there. So 12, it was 10,000 at the time. So as soon as I, I started to win a couple of Monty tours, I then played some futures qualifying. Still, we were driving, we were going there from the academy every day. And it kind of eased me into the futures without a long, a long trip or a, or a more expensive. So yeah, the competition out there is great, and being able to play men's, I was playing men men's tournaments from 16 out there. But yeah. I didn't, I hardly played a, I think I played two junior ITFs. So, so the competition out there is, is great. It's really good system out there, and that's a great point. I think that that's probably the biggest difference the competition. And and for those listening. And for myself, actually, because it's not called the Monty Tour anymore, I don't believe. But what explain what the Monty Tour is? Yeah, so the Monty Tour is basically just your equivalent of British tours in in the Catalan area, so in Barcelona Barcelona area. But anybody can enter, and you just have you'll have massive draws a lot of the time. I remember I won like a one two eight draw once because that's how many people entered, yeah. and the organisers weren't gonna were gonna let everybody in. And with all the academies there and and Spanish players anyway. There'd be week-long events. Um, they'd be quite flexible with you when you could play as well. Um, and yeah, they're really good for development and out there, the coaching, as you probably know, you know, if I, we had an academy coach with us, they could speak to us pretty much the whole match. Yeah. So definitely, definitely aided development. Yeah, it's the word flexibility that you've used a couple of times. The flexibility to enter the events two days before the event starts, the flexibility to, to withdraw, the flexibility to have your coaches there, the flexibility to be coached as you're playing. You know, I know that the, uh, the WTA Tour has just taken a different stance on that, but up until now, the global world of tennis hasn't allowed coaching to happen. And I remember I went back to Nottingham ITF a few years ago, and I had about 15 coaching warnings and, and all because I'm so used to just talking to the players and, and I'm talking like emotional coaching. It's not, you know, that I'm not, I'm not that good that I'm going to start telling a player to change their forehand or, or do this every, every couple of minutes to make that big of a difference. But I think again, having that kind of not so rigid, you know, the whole system's not quite so rigid. So it allows it allows for that development in so many different ways. Whereas I think maybe we're a little bit guilty of, we're kind of sticklers for rules in the UK. You know, that's the rule. That's how it is. You must enter three and a half weeks before. You do not get in the tournament. You must not open your mouth and speak to the players. And I think I think 
I would definitely like to see that change as well. And it's come up on the podcast a lot. I don't have the the definite answers for it, but we do need to try and provide more competitive experiences at, at all ages, I believe, in, in the game. Yeah, and I remember actually now thinking about it, I used to write down, I had a notebook for every single match I played. And I think that first year in 06, 07, I played like around 100 matches. I wouldn't have left like the Catalonia area because I wasn't, I hadn't made it out of a futures qualifying. That, I, that wasn't my level. Yep. So, and I'd improved, but, you know, just through, just through all those matches and, and they were all local. I was training like morning and then you have a match, it's depending on what you match was, you still manage to get like practicing. So it's yep. very flexible and, yeah, and you just you managed to get a lot more matches in. Yeah, well, it's still the same, Alex. I, I bring all the tournament schedules. If you, I did the under sixteen kind of generic tournament schedule for players at the academy, and it was unbelievable how many events that they could play. And then if they're good enough to play the futures in Spain or or nip across to Portugal, you know, playing the ITF juniors, you know, it 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 really competition couldn't be any less of a problem here and. Yeah, I'm, I'm beating that same drum. You know, different guests keep saying it, but uh, you've just hit the nail on the head there. In two-year period, you've played over 200 matches. Where that might take five, six, seven years for somebody in the UK. It'll take 25 years for somebody in Ireland. You know, it's even worse in Ireland. They play, they play like seven matches a year. So so that's that's massive. In terms of then you moving forward, I guess at 18, and, and actually, I, I have to remember a conversation I had with the late, great Paul Hutchins, who I know was a massive supporter of yourself, because that was the first time I heard your name, and you probably would have been round about 18, 19 at the time. And he told me, I'm telling you, there's, there's this kid, Alex Ward, he's going to be he's going to be really good, you know, which... I guess to touch on what was the influence Paul had on your career? Yeah, Paul was great. He actually quite early on um, when I reached out, to, I mean, my father reached out to him and he actually came over to Sanchez for sale, watched me training a few times, went out of his way, didn't have to, and, and really tried to help. I mean, he was, he was so supportive and, and you really, I just really felt he was there and, and he cared. So yeah, I remember him coming over and he didn't have, it was completely out of his way. I think he might have been going somewhere else, but, yeah, no, he's a fantastic guy, and I think his hopefully his stuff lives on because he's affected so many players in such a great way. No, no, absolutely. And then because, at, like I say, at that age when I did hear Paul talking about you, you were it wasn't obvious to the eye that you were you were going to be a, a really good player. So why why wasn't American University an option for you, or was it an option for you, and why did you choose against it? Yeah, it's a funny one that because it never really became an option um I think initially well initially I went to Spain when I was 16 I finished my GCSEs but I'd agreed with my school that I was going to have a year out in Spain and I asked him if I could come back and do my A-levels a year late but just basically see how the year went in Spain in Sanchez and I remember sitting down with my dad after the year and it was tough because with those as you know those national competitions you I've, I had improved but there's no it's not I didn't have an ITF junior ranking I'd never qualified for futures but I kind of, I really wanted to do it. So went with it. And then just the week after I turned 18, I'd qualified for my first future a couple of weeks before my 18th birthday, started to make some, and then I made a final. When I, I made my first point, I made the final of a 10K. So I went to, I went to 990. So 
didn't touch thousands, went 990 right before the summer. So I was main draw futures out of nowhere. And then I started to receive kind of a bit of LTA back and a bit of funding. But then the whole college thing, it was, I was almost probably going to find it tough to get a scholarship in, in my eyes because I had nothing to, to go on. And then yeah. all of a sudden, fortunately, had the had some financial help from the LTA. So went with that and down that path. But I think it's a, I mean, I've seen so many good players from that. I think it's such a good option. I just think the timing in a way just didn't didn't happen for me. And any regrets that you have that you didn't go? No. Um, no, I don't really have any regrets because, yeah, I'm happy with kind of how it's turned out and, and how everything went. So no, yeah. not really. Yeah, because I think it's it, you go. I believe you played on the on the pro tour for 10, 10, 11 years, which is quite a long time. You know, lots of lots of people talk about kind of six or seven years mix is is, is almost enough. It's almost like that's that that unless you're reaching the 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 higher echelons of of the of the sport. So how did you manage over those 10, 11 years of, you know, losing, having to deal with injuries, the loneliness on the tour, you know, how were you able to deal with that for so long? I've got to say that I, I loved it and I loved, I loved the life. I'm very competitive. I love competing with like, and that probably took away the fact that the money and my ranking wasn't great. You know, I was in debt quite a bit of the time and then I was breaking even at times and back in debt, but, I just loved kind of when I rationalized it, when I asked myself that question during those 10 years, like, is it worth it? I was like, well, yeah, what, what else am I going to do in my 20s? This is great. Like, yeah. you know, I might not be making amazing money, but I'm playing a competitive sport. I've got, you know, obviously all from my playing career, I had ambitions of playing slams. I had ambitions of had targets and I was always driving towards something. Um, so I loved it. And then ultimately I always had that, I had that maybe question to myself every couple of years, like, is this worth it? And then ultimately at 28, had that question and I was more on the other side for the first time I was like well no actually I haven't got a driver's license I haven't got like anywhere I haven't got my own place I haven't I'm not living anywhere I'm always living at mates houses and that just for me was the age where the scale tipped and I was kind of I was very clear in that decision and I was ready to go but those 10 years I mean I I loved it it was so it was great I mean competitive sport and yeah getting to travel Right. So uh, lovely. It's lovely to hear you speak so positively about it. And what was what was your driving force for that? What was your what was your real, I guess, will your real want the, to to do it? And did you did you reach that, or did you get out of it to the point where you would look back at your playing career as a success? Initially, when I started professionally, eighteen, I was quite small with the goals as in it'd be year by year but then around I started to win future first future I won was about 21 and I think I went to about 350 and then Wimbledon like for me I knew that being inside top 250 I'd have a chance of getting a wild card I knew that that's Grand Slam qualities like top 250 then became the goal and yeah and I was driving towards that I mean I'm I'm highly competitive so I mean anyone who's anything and anyone's in the fantasy football league at JTC with me knows that I'm extremely competitive so that was a big driver like winning just being able to win each week and potential of winning drove me on um and then yeah the chance to play Wimbledon that was a big driver as well and just to see and almost like curiosity to see like how how where can we go with this like 
how far can I go? What what can I achieve? Like kind of that. Yeah. I didn't want to leave and think like, oh, and I stopped too early or, or what could I have done? So, and I do, in regards to your second question, I definitely regard it as success, like a big success. Yeah. If you had to be ranked inside 120 to play Wimbledon, do you think you might have got to 120? So I guess the question is, do you think that kind of 250 goal to potentially get a wild card into Wimbledon is a detriment or was a detriment to you and is a detriment to British players in terms of their pursuit and drive to, to raise their ranking? Um, it's a good question. Just speaking for myself, I don't think that would be the case because I had these, so as I alluded to, I had those smaller goals and that 250 goal was just another goal at, yeah. in 2012. It just took me, it just took me ages to get it. <laughs> like, yeah. I would have, you know, I'd have been ready to, I'd love to set another goal after that. I'd have been brilliant. Like, but for me, that was just the next goal. And yeah. it just took me, it took me a bit like five, six years, six years to reach it. And yeah, no, I think personally that, yeah, yeah I wanted to do it, but I also wanted to be the best I could. There was no yeah. doubt about that. Now that you're on the coaching side, can you see how maybe that might be the case with some players? It could be the case. It, each player is... I mean, each player's a different person. They've got different mindsets. They're in different positions financially. I mean, I can see, I can see how with some people who maybe have less like intrinsic drive than because you can start to make some good money there, but you can't sit still. That's the thing. You, no one's no one can just stay there and sit still. So yeah, from person to person it'll be different. That's all I can say about that. And your experience playing at Wimbledon, I know you had a, had a couple of experiences. I believe you played Kyle Edmund one year, didn't you? How, how was that experience? Yeah, so 2016, I got a wild card. I played Goffin first round and I won seven games and it was a big effort to win those seven games. I mean, he, I felt like he didn't miss a ball. Yeah, it was, that was a tough match. I mean, I loved the experience, but it was a, it was a beat down. I think it was 6-2, 6-3, 6-2. Yeah, and then, then 2017, I actually was in a quite a poor run of form through April to June. I hadn't won a match in ages. And then I actually came through pre-qualies, where I lost in the last round of pre-qualies to Dan Cox. Then they opened up a, an extra wild card into qualies, which they gave me, and then kind of picked up some form, qualified, played, started to play better and better through the qualies. And I've got to say that was the day after qualifying, it was the best feeling I've ever had because yeah. that, because of the gap probably. So I qualified on Thursday and the first rounds on Tuesday. And that was just incredible. Like the feeling of, of qualifying for Wimbledon, um, especially as I hadn't won a match and qualifying there before. I didn't really think before that, that my game is putting, putting limits on yourself. I didn't really think that my game suited kind of those courts down at Rampton. Yeah. But yeah, made it through to main draw and then lost to Kyle in four sets. I played well first. I think he came out quite nervy, to be honest. And then he was he was too good. Kind of had sort of similar games and he was he was better at it, to be honest. He was already 50 in the world and yeah, he was, he was too high a level for me. Amazing effort to qualify at a Grand Slam. Did that did that almost feel like your FA Cup final? It was yeah, yeah, it did. I remember the last the last round qualities. Um, so I'd never been, never been second round qualities, never been last round qualities. So it was, didn't have that all or nothing feeling, but there was no guarantee I was going to be, have this chance again. And I think actually what helped me is that 
that Jay Clark was in the last round of qualifiers and Willis was as well. Yeah. So Marcus was playing. I remember he was playing on the court that's got a stand. I don't know what it's called because he because only the year before he qualified, so it was quite a lot of attention. Yeah. And then Jay was playing behind me, and I think Jay went up, but Marcus was playing. And I remember walking onto court, and there wasn't really anyone around. And then I lost the. I actually lost the first set. I played Gabash Billy. Lost the first set, and and yeah, there wasn't that spotlight before the match necessarily on yeah. me like oh this is you know he's in last round qualities i was just one of three guys in the last round qualities which is yeah. a, in british tennis is what you want it's a great thing it's a rare thing but it's a great thing and then yeah and then i, I managed to yeah i started to just find a flow you know i mean everyone speaks about it but that's what you want to find where you you think in the right amount your tennis is flowing and yeah i played a came back and won in four sets and as i said it was an incredible feeling how do you find that flow? Is it is it something that you, in your career, understood how you could get yourself there? Or did it just come along by chance? You know, I, I guess I, I don't like to think that... I don't like the word hope. I like the word create. I like to think we can create mindsets and not hope we have a mindset. You know, did you find a way of creating or giving yourself the best chance of finding that flow? Yeah, I think creating conditions that flow can happen. Um, yeah. I think that's the key because you can't find, you can't just be like, I mean, no. to find flow, where is it? Because you definitely won't find flow that way. Um, so I think creating conditions and it's kind of about your, probably like almost your philosophy, your approach to your tennis, how you see the match, how you see in a way your, yeah, whether you put too high expectations or have self-defeating beliefs. It's, there's a lot of things that go into it, but, and letting it go ultimately and just and just trusting it and almost thinking like in that match I remember for it and I was like yeah I want to win so much but you know you'll, you'll be all right mate like you you'll be all right like you know if yeah. whatever happens happens but you'll be okay and allow him and then I think you allow flow in because you allow anything to happen and you allow yourself to play great um, and, and in terms of again differences Alex like Looking, looking through, and I think you made some like 25 futures finals and won 16. So you obviously were pretty good in the in the big moments as well. That's a great record. And you made one challenger final. We we talk a lot in tennis about the difference in levels, and and there's such subtlety to it. You know, in your experience, where where are those big differences or those small differences that come between? futures level and, and challenger level on the men's side yeah so for me personally when I look back on my tennis my game I'd say that I became a, a high futures player let's say low to medium challenger player and I, for my game I needed one of two things I needed either a bigger serve my serve was all right I had a good second serve my first serve could get three points but it wasn't massive or I need to move better and I was because at six foot one that's not tall in the men's game yeah. like that's that's nowhere, especially at the moment, that's nowhere near at all. Yeah. So one of those things looking back for me to make that next jump up had to be better, the serve or the movement. And I think I think that's a common trait. I think when you see guys move up to challenges, I think weapons, they've got big weapons a lot of the time yeah. to serve, but if I've got a bigger weapon than somebody who did who did well at futures, let's say, I'd, I'd big weapon in my forehand, but the serve, for my movement and my game style for me wasn't big enough. And then again, as I alluded to just now, the movement. If, yeah. if you're not bringing massive weapons, you need to be an unbelievable mover, like an, un, an unbelievable, because men's tennis now, 
there is so many good moves out there. It's scary. Like when you go and watch a men's tennis match live at, at that level, like a, let's say a top 200, the amount of retrieving skills they've got, the amount of turning defense into attack, even just one point, it's yep. scary. And that's probably something that changed during my career. Even during my, it got, it's got to such a level now that it, it's scary. And you, unless you're bringing huge weapons, yep. huge weapons, you need to be a great mover. And yeah, that's my verdict on that level. And now that you're a coach working in the women's tour, is it similar on that side or what would you say you, you need on the women's side to, to make the breakthrough into being a top 100 player? I think there are differences. I think the physicality is obviously is better on the men's side. There's no get, getting away from that. They, they move better. I feel the women have improved a lot in that area though. And I feel their trends are actually happening almost 10 15 years after the men's, I, I see a lot more female players now that are forehand dominant, something yeah. that the men were, and maybe that's going away now. Maybe the men's for me is a bit more all court. There's actually guys doing well with a bit more of a, a flatter ball strike um, yeah. on the men's side. And I think the women's now is becoming more serve dominant, almost more forehand dominant, whereas the, I think the stereotypical thing a little bit before was like the backhand was the best shot and they'd use timing more than generating. I think they, I think they can generate power now. So yeah. I think they're, getting stronger they're also getting taller and yeah the difference is there's i'd say there's still more especially at the moment i feel it's come back in finishing the points off of the net there's more all-court players in the men's game there is definitely all-court players in the women's game um just not as many as the men's game i feel that's now in the men's game i feel that's a great a great asset someone like evo who can finish points off of the net because it's so tough and if you've got big weapons to hit balls past people yeah. so to have that ability to finish the points of the net um, I think more men do that than the women, but that's probably out of necessity in a way because yeah. the men have to do that now because the movement's so insane. Yeah. And you you talked about your your serve and your movement as being two kind of key areas. Were, were they recognised when you were playing and did, did you feel like you put the relevant work in to try and bring those together? Or is that something that you look back on and say, I wish I'd done that a little bit better or, or, or spent more time? I definitely put the work in on the movement side. I remember, I mean, I went, trained at NTC from 2009, 2015, and we did, I did so much stuff on that, that side, um, on the movement side, really big emphasis on, on getting quicker, getting more explosive kind of movement patterns. Um, and the serve, I mean, that's probably one thing, going back to, to Spain, where I, like my service action was all right, but I'm pretty powerful guy and potentially could have in those formative years could have looked more at the service technique and maximizing kind of what I got out of it um, but not the move probably the serve if I had to pick one yeah it's a little bit Spanish to the, the serve the service to start the point isn't it <laughs> rather than to gain an advantage yeah, less, less now um, but when I went out there they, they thought myself huge it's, it's decent but it's not Looking at the men's tour now, it's not. I mean, I had a mat. I think I got to like one, one twenties. One, but for a, for a guy who's who would say was an average mover, it's not a big serve. It's not a big serve. And and moving you on to being a coach, which I believe you've been doing for two or three years now. How how have you found that transition from from being a player to now being on the other side of the fence? Yeah. So it's been what's it been two? Yeah, two and a bit years now. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate, actually. I remember when I stopped playing 
had a couple of months back in Northampton. I was doing a bit of club coaching just to see if I actually enjoyed coaching. You know, I don't think you know until you do it. And I really enjoyed that. And actually fortunate at the same time, like a month after that, I got a call from, from Colin Beecher and Dave Felgate at JTC um, asking if I'd be interested to help out there. And uh, which I'm very grateful for because that's opened up a lot of doors. And, and yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've, I think it's, it's definitely opened my eyes in terms of changing the perspective because when you're playing it, you know, you're thinking about yourself, you, you see tennis through your lens, but there's so many different ways to play this game. There's so many different mindsets out there. And now I'm really enjoying it. I learn a lot, but I'm really enjoying it. And even if we take, I guess, you've had the 14-day quarantine, it's one thing to quarantine when you're about to go and play a tournament yourself, but it's another thing to quarantine when kind of you're giving your life up for a player who, and I'm not saying Heather's going to do this. This is not personal to Heather, but to a player who next week might just decide that you're not the right coach for them anymore. You know, you have a lot less control over that. Do you, do you find that the traveling's harder because of that or, or, or you can still just, it seems to me like you just absolutely love it anyway. <laughs> I really enjoy that. I do really enjoy the travel. Um, I get, I get your point and that it's, you know, you're, I'm here to help out now and it's, and it's less in my control, but then at the same time, it's, you know, there's, there's stuff that like stuff in tennis that Heather can do that I could, could never do. And there's, you know, every player has different journeys that kind excite, excite me because they can do things that maybe I couldn't or, that's a big drive for me, kind of helping out and seeing where, where the player can go. And even though it's early stages of your coaching, would you say you've started to create your own philosophies? It is early and I'm, I'm learning a lot. I'd say if you're looking at philosophies, I think transparency is key. I think having a very good communication, good open dialogue between player and coach, I think that's, from what I've seen, is almost paramount because you need to know like let's say it's a really stupid reason, but but they're just not in a good headspace. They're just they turn up to practice and they're just feeling terrible. It's a re- and in their eyes, it's just, they don't want to tell me because it's really, I think it's really important that that openness for them to say and for them to be fine and let's have that conversation. So we always know where we stand, and then we can try and find solutions between us. I think if it's if you don't have that open communication, then it's not going to work that well because you coach or myself is going to be trying to find solutions for the wrong problem or, or, you know, or thinking there isn't a problem. So I think that's, that's massive having that open conversation. I think curiosity is a, a philosophy for me. I'm quite a curious guy. And I think that that serves players well. I think it serves coaches well. Like I think having played those years and seeing what, you know, I, I was around professional tennis. So I saw what other coaches did. I was involved in sessions where the player that I'm practicing with their coach, did the session so I got a lot of just from opening my eyes to the world around me I think especially here I mean especially in Australia I mean there's so much to learn so I think being curious and yeah curiosity and transparency are good. They're certainly they're certainly really good starting points aren't they you know and I think you know you're obviously already doing a really good job Alex because these players if you're not are quick to are quick to move on so I know you've been working with Heather for a little while now and if we talk about your your goals your personal goals as a coach what what are your goals over the next five or ten years that's a good question it's a tough question because it's actually tough to know I mean I, 
all I can say is I really enjoy what I'm doing now. I enjoy traveling a lot. Whether that will change, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, at the moment, I just want to see where Heather can go and, and take from there. But it's actually really tough for me to say. I actually don't know. I don't know kind of five, ten years down the line what that looks like. So what's what's yours and Heather's goals for the next six months then, 2021? Where are you guys headed? So currently when we're talking, Olympics is on. So to, to qualify, if that's a big goal. And Heather's very motivated by titles and obviously by win like everybody else, but a WTA title um, in 2021, that's a big goal. And then we've spoken a bit about this recently, actually, is kind of getting past, I think it was 38, her career high. And that's, yeah. that's a big goal for us. Well, well, good luck, good luck, good luck on the rest of the trip in Australia. You know, it's 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 an exciting time. It's obviously a very challenging time in the world, but I think for people that are involved in the Australian swing, now that quarantines are out of the way, I think it's a really exciting time to be involved. I'm certainly very envious as a coach. I think that's all all eyes and all spotlights are going to be on Australia the next few weeks. Uh, but before we go, Alex, got our quick fire round. So are you, are you ready to rock and roll? Yeah, let's do it. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Serve or return? Serve. Even I slagged off my serve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, serve. Singles or doubles? Singles. Coach or player? Player. Injury time out or not? Yeah, I think you've got to have them. Um, maybe a limit on them, but I think you've got to have them. There's some, you know, you need to have them. Who's going to win the Premier League 2021? That's a good question. Uh, Man City. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Uh, let's go traditional Davis Cup. One rule change that you would have in tennis? Yeah, we talked about it earlier. I'd have, I'd make it fine to coach. I think that's okay. I think, I think it provides value to the player. And I actually don't think it would, especially at the top level with pros, how good they are. I don't think it would make tons of difference. Like, I don't think it would make loads of difference. But I think, yeah, being able to coach. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Uh, yeah, he's in the room. He's in the room next to me, actually. Uh, I think Dan Smevers, go for him. Coach of Johanna Conta. Smevy, let's get him on. Yeah, get him on. Drop me his, his number to make sure I've still got the same number for him, and I'm gonna I'll get in touch with him, and we'll get him on in the next few days. Top man, it's great to talk to you. It's to get somebody's insight into one playing and having all those different experiences you had, and then going into the the world of coaching as well. Thanks for your time, Alex, and I'm sure everyone's gonna love and take lots from this podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dan, and thanks a lot for the job you're doing with these podcasts. I've listened to a few, and they're, they're brilliant, so well done. Thank you. Another great show, and as always, a big thank you to you for, for listening. If at this point you normally turn the podcast off, don't, because as always, I have Vicky beside me, and we like to just go through our learnings, our takeaways from the podcast. It certainly is been a big part of learning, personal learning for us over the last few months as well. And maybe we might be able to talk about something that brings something to your mind 
if you want to then send your thoughts through to us as well, then that's what this is all about. It's about sharing information. It's about taking different opinions and seeing if that can then be used in our own personal life. So yeah, that one, Vicky, a, a conversation four or five months ago, there was a couple of things in there. He didn't predict that Man City were going to win the Premier League when he'd already <laughs> they'd already won it so clearly um, a he few days ago, he but he did call it back in January, February when, when we had the chat. But a big thank you to you for bringing the sound alive. Lots of work going on behind the scenes. Well, nice to use my, my skills, put the old editing skills to good use. And with this, with this podcast, because normally we would have the conversation and then it would go out within a week or two, if not even sometimes a couple of days, it would always be very fresh on my mind on what my takeaways were. So I have gone back and listened to this as a listener. And and I have to say, there was so much that I did take from Alex and from his journey so far. I thought it was just really nice to hear from a player who really enjoyed their time on the tour. 10 years, it's a long time, a huge chunk of his life, really. And he just spoke so positively about it. And, and like he said, you know, he played through his 20s, traveling, playing a sport that he loved. You know, not many people get the opportunity to do that. Yeah, and, and I think especially when he didn't reach the height of of the game. You know, we had Paul Anacone on last week, traveling the world with arguably two of the greatest ever male players living it up. I would imagine in five-star hotels, five-star restaurants, Traveling first class, you know, that's that's the life I think everyone sees for themselves. And I think somebody like Alex Ward, 242 in the world at his best, for him to have that amazing perspective and gratitude for for that and for his time on the tour was amazing. And, and I can't help thinking when you hear the story, you know, up until 16, playing tennis four hours a week, <laughs> I nearly said four hours a day because that, that would be normal, mm-hmm. you know, then getting the chance to go to a Spanish academy age 16. And it's almost as if he saved his best years for his professional career, where maybe there's an argument that lots of people have their best years as a junior. And by the time they play on the professional tour, they're already a little bit burnt out by their tennis. Well, he said, didn't he? He didn't really play any junior ITFs or any junior tournaments. He went straight into the futures. Another benefit of um, the Spanish system, really. He said, you know, he'd be training in the morning um, at the academy and be playing a match in the afternoon with 12 futures just in the area where his academy was. It's, it's an amazing setup, really. Did you say competition structure? <laughs> Here I am, high horse again. But yeah, no, it, it does. Again, once again, competition structure, playing 100 matches a year. You know, like you said, not having to travel too far. And and I know I was with one of our Irish boys these last two or three days. ITF Pro Circuit event in Marbella. Training at the academy in the morning. Playing a match. Coming back, training in the afternoon. And there just is so much opportunity for that. I'm beating an old drum. Yep. If you <laughs> If you haven't heard me talking about this before, then... Go and listen to the other podcasts. You'll probably hear me mention in at least 50% of them. But again, it's not. we're not talking rocket science here. You know, there's a, there's a talented young sportsman who, and we have to mention as well, his dad being a tennis coach, he's obviously learned a lot. It says that he played 
four hours a week, but I also know, and he mentioned he was hitting a lot against the wall. So there's a lot of skill development that's happening just by being in the environment. But then he's really up the volume from age 16 onwards. And this guy's then gone on to be top 250 ATP. You know, and I, I think that again shows in our sport the importance of being in the right environments and having the right competition structure. But also parents, I beg you, don't stress when they're younger. You know, let them enjoy it, let them play, let them learn, let them develop skill. But you're not going to make it at that sort of age. You know, you need to get the right grounding and then let it happen. Lovely advice. And don't forget, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. You can get in touch with us at ctc.podcast on Instagram or you can email us at info at sototennis.com. And we've had lots of people get in touch about Paul Anacone's episode. Craig Veal has been in touch to say it could be his new favourite yeah, and I think I think one of the things we we love hearing from you all, but there is something quite special when we hear from our former guests. You know, Cameron Norrie. Actually, I was speaking to him after his amazing victory last week over Dominic Team, and he said he was actually settling down to listen to the Alistair McCaw episode, and he absolutely loves loves the podcasts. And also speaking to Cameron Norrie's coach, who will be coming up in the next in the next month. He also is a, is a big fan and has been listening to them all. So when when these former guests are getting in touch, it, it, it means a lot. It shows that there is lots of learnings at all the different levels of the game. But please do carry on sending the messages. We see them, we hear them, we try and reply to every single one of them. But it really does mean a lot to us. So thank you for that. Keep the liking, keep the ratings, keep the reviewing. And later this week, look out for our French Open preview, which will be out this weekend as a little bonus episode leading into French Open 2021. It's another great conversation, lots of fun to be had, and I'm sure you guys will enjoy that. Let's see who's got the picks right. All I will say, there's only one brave person in that panel. And it's not actually any of the panel. It might actually be the host. But we'll leave We'll leave it at that. They've all gone a little bit predictable. But it is well worth a listen. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan, And we are Control the Controllables. 